I'm always interested in experiences where it can be a little bit more personal and you feel like you're actually talking to a person. Even if we can bring that to an asynchronous exchange, I think that's interesting. I don't know if it'll work, but it's the kind of experiment that I'm interested in playing with and seeing if we can move the needle with it. Hey, it's Dan McGaw. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack operations firm, McGaw.io. Each week, I speak with executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, I have Roland Smart. He's the CMO of Product School, an online education company for product managers. Roland's also a proud fellow tech nerd who loves talking about MarTech and digital marketing innovation, so I'm stoked that we were able to have him on the podcast. Product School secured $25 million investment in 2021, and they're forecasting significant growth over the next few years. Right now, they're building a solid foundation that can support that growth moving forward. Some of the things that stand out are his attention to personalization, community, and advancements in asynchronous communication. He's also got lots of tips on what not to do with your stack and helpful stories that illustrate how to avoid common mistakes. Here's my conversation with Roland. So I'm the chief marketing officer at Product School. I've been focused on marketing for a long time, but having spent a lot of my career at startups or early stage companies, I'm also pretty passionate about entrepreneurship and I am building a product of my own. I am starting another company with a couple of co-founders on the side. So I get to indulge all those interests. Now, how would you describe what Product School is? Like, what is Product School? Product School is a training company that launches PMs into a career. So we start with folks who are aspiring PMs as maybe people who aren't yet in, don't have a career yet or just starting their career. And we help them advance all the way through their journey within the companies that they're going to work for. So help them get their first senior PM job, help them lead a team, help them get to a place where they're looking after a group and all the way up through um, chief product officers. You know, there are some graduates actually of product school who we started seven years ago who are now actually in CPO roles, which is pretty amazing. And so our goal is to support that whole journey and help individuals advance their career, but also help enterprises just build better products. That's pretty fascinating. I mean, that's a pretty awesome model. How would you describe the problem that product school is solving for the market? The fundamental problem is actually that enterprises are realizing that they are operating in environments that are changing very quickly and that upstarts can disrupt their businesses faster than ever before. And in order for them to be competitive, they need to focus more on product management and innovation and product-led growth. So that's what is really pulling product management into the organization. They're the consumers, so to speak, of product management talent. And their companies are increasingly trying to become product-led. They see that as the future. And they are facing a problem in the market, which is that there just aren't enough talented product management professionals out there. There's recent LinkedIn data from just a few months ago, which showed that product management is actually, I think, the fastest growing role within enterprises in the United States, and it's quickly becoming a dominant role outside the United States. That speaks to the demand side of it. What does success look like for product school over the next 12 months or even five years, right? So 2022 
is going to be a year that is really, really focused on building a foundation. So maybe I can go back and talk for a minute about the history of the business and how we got to where we are today. This is a business that's almost eight years old. It was started with a consumer go-to-market. So we sold certifications to individual students that wanted to advance their careers. And we've really built the business on top of a content-driven go-to-market. We have put more content in the market about product management really than any other company in the world. So a lot of our growth has been driven organically on top of that content. And because we had really good product market fit, it's amazing to have really good product market fit, but it also can cause companies to underinvest in areas that they're going to need later on when growth gets harder where the numbers get bigger, basically. <laughs> we are very much at that stage. I should also mention that two or three years ago, we started an enterprise go-to-market where we're selling directly to enterprises. And the timing for that was natural because you know we have almost 10,000 graduates in the market. Those graduates work at companies. They've got colleagues at that company that they think should get training from product school as well. And they're recommending us to their managers and... So we started feeling a significant amount of pull for enterprise training and we're leaning into that. That's kind of what has gotten us to where we are today, but we didn't really, because we had such good product market fit, we didn't invest in some of the foundational marketing technology and technology that we needed to really bring a data-driven approach to the business. We need to build that now. And so 2022 is... I would say more than anything else, the year that is going to be really, really focused on building that foundation. And that's going to set us up for really incredible growth in 2023. Not that we're not growing fast now, you know. <laughs> we got to do it all at once, you know, Dan. I mean, I'm sure your, your clients tell you this, that like you need to build the bridge and race over it at the same time. That's, that's where we're at. Totally, all the time. I try to compare it to a submarine that we're trying to prevent the water from getting inside of as we are going across the ocean because we will all drown if we don't patch these holes fast enough. And many a ship I have seen sink in my years of experience. What Roland is doing here, building a solid foundation, is so key to their success. He's at exactly the right moment in his business's growth to be doing this too. Let's say someone decides to start a business and they've got a very limited amount of capital. They're going to focus on the tools that are like the lowest cost to run their show. These are like the free versions of HubSpot, Google Drive, uh, social media channels for marketing, and you know, there's a ton of other freemium options out there. And don't get me wrong, many of these free tools are great. Basically, anybody can start a business now with how low the uh, barrier to entry is. However, once you've been running things a little while and you're starting to grow, it's likely that you'll start to think like, oh shit, none of these tools are working for my new needs. Now, once revenue is flowing and you're expanding your team, this is a great time to assess your foundation, as Roland says, and make sure that you've got the tools you need in order to keep that ship afloat for many years. All that being said, I do think it's great when we can start with the ultimate stack from day one. To learn how to build the ultimate stack and the right foundation of free tools to scale with, just get a free copy of my book at buildcoolshit.com. I recognize that every business's needs are different though at each stage, and Roland's smart for choosing this moment to get his tech stack foundation squared away before they have all their amazing growth. Now, let's get back to Roland. 
over the next year, it sounds like a big focus is going to be on building that foundation. And then over the next few years, once that foundation is up, don't get me wrong, you're not, it's not like you're not growing, but you're really going to probably pour the gas on after you get your foundation. You know, when you think about building this foundation, though, what are the main KPIs that you as a marketing leader are using to kind of measure the business? How are you measured and what are you looking at most often? Before answering that question, I feel like I should preface it by saying I, I think about KPIs in a hierarchy. I think of like strategic company level KPIs. I think about operational KPIs, which may be organizational within the company or maybe team level. And I think about sort of more like tactical KPIs that a team or an individual IC might be looking after. We can drill into any of those levels, but I am most focused on operational and strategic KPIs, although occasionally I get the opportunity to go deep somewhere with one of my colleagues, and I love doing that. But, you know, at the highest level, it's stuff that you would expect to see. It's, for example, at product school, it's about sales growth. And for us, that means that we have KPIs around it, sales-assisted growth. That's where our admissions team is involved in a sale, direct sales where that's a transactional sale that's being managed through our website without human intervention. And then, of course, there's enterprise sales. There's the standard things like customer acquisition cost. I think about how that relates to return on ad spend, which is increasingly part of our um, go-to-market. I think about lifetime value. We're adding a lot more structure and measurement to our funnel. So we have KPIs that are around conversion rates between stages of the funnel. You're talking a little bit about some of these strategic KPIs, and a lot of it sounded like focused on sales, right? So sales-assisted, enterprise sales. It sounds like there's a pretty big sales motion. Now, when you say sales growth, are you referring to like sales in general, or are you referring to revenue? So both is the answer. I mean, it's all about increasing enrollment, right? Like more students, more students, more students. That speaks to where we are, right? I mean, we are in the midst of a significant period of growth. There's a significant demand for talent that is unmet. And so we're in a window of opportunity where there is just an insane need. And our primary objective is to try and source that and to acquire that market share. Could you give me just a 10-foot view of what's in the stack that your team is using? Yeah, so we're making a bunch of changes, fair disclosure right now, so things are changing. But as one example of that, I'll, I'll just start with our website because I see the website as like the primary marketing tool that we have. We are making actually a pretty big transition off of WordPress and we are moving to Contentful as our CMS and we're going to have a decoupled infrastructure with Next.js for the front end, which is, I think, going to put us in a really interesting position to move much more quickly. Um, so I'm excited about that. Other web tech that we're using, we use Intercom at the moment, although I think we are going to move to Drift at some point in the not-too-distant future. Lots of change. Lots of change. We're moving towards using a solution called Chili Piper for calendaring and appointment setting. We use Segment to pipe around data. Of course, we're um, on Salesforce. Currently, we use um, Customer I.O. for some automation stuff, but we're moving in the direction of a, a more mainstream, more full-service provider there. Now, with with all these tools, I mean, how do you go about sourcing them? And like, what's the criteria that you follow to choose them? Is there a science to this? I mean, I could say a lot about my procurement process. If I were to like drop one piece of advice in, I would say... 
I am a big fan of going into the communities for these technology providers and really paying attention to what's going on in those communities because I find it to be extremely revealing of what the experience of owning the technology is going to be like. And also as somebody who's just, I've spent a lot of my time in community roles and I'm a big believer in community. So I find myself gravitating to socialize with the people who are doing, doing it day to day. Yeah, I think that's a, an amazing hack right there about being able to better understand a tool is getting in its community because you're gonna you're gonna see all the things that people can't do, the things people can do. You're gonna find the threads where people are frustrated. So I think it's a a great great bit of feedback. You know, when you think all the way at the top of the funnel, the tools that you're using to really be able to generate leads and then capture leads and then process those leads, what are the tools at the top of the funnel? You had mentioned Chili Piper, but like, what are some of the other tools that you're using to really make sure that your lead generation and demand generation are effective? Yeah, we're actually doing a bunch of experimentation. With, I'm, I'm pretty excited about Typeform. We're doing a bunch of experiments with Typeform right now. I think you could do some cool things from an experience perspective. We just are experimenting right now with an MVP of a, a guide for prospective students on which course is best suited to their current needs. And we've built that experience on Typeform. It's a nice little interactive guide to making a decision about our courses. But there are other things you can do with Typeform that I think are pretty cool that could integrate well into the admissions process. So you probably know that Typeform owns a company called Video Ask. Hey, what I wanted to know is how does Video Ask work? From feedback and lead generation to job applications and video testimonials, wherever you need responses, Video Ask's got you covered. It's basically a place where in a window, you can have an admissions person, for example, in the product school use case, say like at the end of our quiz, you can have an admissions member of the admissions team explain the result in video to the user and then say, hey, do you have specific questions about anything that I shared with you? And the user can grab their webcam right on their com- camera or right on their uh, desktop or on their phone. They can just record a video reply, which will go into a queue for that salesperson or that admissions person. And then they can reply again via video. So it's like asynchronous video directly through your mobile device or browser. So it's just it just makes the process of engaging in that way really accessible and really easy and seamless. And I'm always interested in experiences where it can be a little bit more personal and you feel like you're actually talking to a person. Even if we can bring that to an asynchronous exchange, I think that's interesting. I don't know if it'll work, but it's the kind of experiment that I'm interested in playing with and seeing if we can move the needle with it. A personal touch can go a long way in our digital world. It feels like, hey, there's a real human on the other side that cares about me versus, you know, the please wait in line while the robots talk to you. And when I say robots, I mean your crappy drip sequence that you're spamming them with. Simple things like even addressing people by their name or sending them content that is tailored to their pains have a big impact. Really, at the end of the day, human-to-human interaction and human-human connection is going to be the best route to build trust with your customers. There is a fine line between that personal touch, though, and being creepy. Sometimes companies struggle with the balance between these two things, and I'll give you an example. In 2012, Target created an algorithm that could predict if someone was pregnant with 80% accuracy, and even used this prediction to send direct mail ads offering coupons on baby products. I wonder what could go wrong. 
So did you know this? Stores tracking your every move, well, may have finally taken it too far. Target's advanced advertising system even knew about a teenage girl's pregnancy before she could break the news to her own father. And he found out when the store sent her maternity deals in the mail. This all sounds crazy, right? But to you, we can predict all kinds of things nowadays and we can use it for personalization. You know, it just, we have to be conscious of is we don't want to cross that line into the creepy space. Now back to Roland so we can hear what's in his stack. I mean, it's interesting though. I mean, Typeform is a fantastic product, does a really, really good job. And it sounds like it's helping you become more interactive and engaging through maybe some of your lead gen efforts let's just say you capture all these leads, right? Like, is there marketing automation in the middle of the funnel? Is there, like, what is the process from the time that somebody fills out a form to then becomes in a class? Like, what type of automation do you have set up or what type of tracking do you have in there? That is a big part of the content-driven go-to-market that we've been doing from day one. So when somebody comes to us and gets into the top of our funnel for whatever reason, we onboard them to basically a welcome series of communications that we have with them. That welcome might happen via email. It might include text messages that we send them. It might include other kinds of um, interactions. And we've got kind of like what I would describe as a main trunk to the welcome, but there are on roads to that main highway that are different depending on how you got into the top of the funnel. So we, we want to personalize the message and, and, and reflect to our prospective student that we hear you, we understand where you came from, and we want to make those first exchanges with them reflect the fact that we know something about them. Now, you, you had mentioned this automation, you have these onboarding sequences that are getting sent out. I'm making the assumption that this all happens in customer.io, which was the automation platform you're using today? That is correct, yep. It's mostly customer I.O. We also, for some of it, we also use a, a solution called um, SalesLoft, which is when a prospect moves from one stage to another, we transition where the automation is being driven. And there's some orchestration that's happening there because we're not necessarily taking them out of customer I.O. It depends on what's happening in SalesLoft, but there's some coordination between those two technologies. You brought up SalesLoft earlier. You had talked about you have Salesforce as your CRM. So, I mean, that's kind of the gold standard of CRMs. I mean, how are you leveraging, you know, you've got all this stuff going on in customer.io. Is it sharing its data with Salesforce? Like, how are you keeping all the dots in a row? Is that going back to the data platform you talked about? Like, how are you keeping all that together with this CRM? We're in a situation that a lot of companies, I think, find themselves in, which is you have a startup, they built a bunch of their business on top of Salesforce and they were going through a period of growth and they were prioritizing staying afloat and selling as much as they can. And their priority was not to deal with or manage the technical debt that they were producing. And just a lot of companies find themselves, they jammed a lot of stuff into Salesforce. Product school is not an exception to that rule. I would just, full disclosure, that has been the case at literally every company that I have ever been at that has a Salesforce implementation finds themselves at a point where they're like, okay, we just need to refactor this because yeah, it's just incredibly bloated. It's not well architected. Also over time, Salesforce has done things a little bit differently and has, there's now a very standard, well-defined way of leveraging Salesforce that if you follow that 
basic way of using Salesforce, it's really easy or a lot easier to integrate third-party solutions like SalesLoft, like Chili Piper, like Sixth Sense, like, you know, all these different tools. Let's talk a little bit about tech debt. It happens to all of us. Over the years, you've added dozens of integrations into your tools, created segmentation lists, marketing journeys, formula fields, sandboxes, and bad workflows, and the list goes on. When you're a startup building Salesforce while also hustling for sales at the same time, you might decide to just pick a plugin, not worry if it fits into the bigger picture, and just let it solve today's pain, while leaving a cluttered mess for yourself down the road. A more sustainable approach would be to build a solution that will still work for your business in the long term. But seriously, what scaling startup has time for all of that or even the knowledge? I'm not suggesting you choose one route over the other, just giving you a bird's eye view of both options. Now back to Roland. One of the questions that I have is in regards to like, when you think over the last year, two years, what are maybe some of the biggest failures or regrets you have when building your stack, you're talking about this foundational element. Like, what have you really fucked up in the past couple of years? Wow. All right. I should be careful about what I say now. No. We talked already before about the fact that, like, at many of the companies that I've been at or the roles that I've been at, community has been a focus. Community has been a part of almost all the companies that I've worked at. I think it's part of what draws me to businesses to work on. And I would say at product school, there's a nut that we have yet to fully crack around community. And we've made some attempts to create venues for our community to get together and to solve problems amongst themselves that have not been successful. The biggest and maybe most obvious example of this is actually our use of Slack. So we have a public community that anybody can join, which is a Slack community. I wasn't actually um, at product school when that started, but if I had to do it all over again, I would not have used Slack for a set of reasons that I think will be pretty obvious to anybody who's familiar with Slack. It's not publicly searchable. The business model and their pricing model is not really amenable to building a community on top of it. Search in Slack is not very good. There's just a wealth of reasons why Slack is not the right place to build a broad community. And we're there, but we now are in a position where we have to think about, okay, well, where do we want to build community? What's the right technology to build it on? And I should also say, it's not, it's not like we're going to host community in just one place. We will host community in um, different venues, but we do want a primary place, which is going to be a center or you know the hub of the experience. And Slack is definitely not it from my perspective. So I would say... That's a, a decision that was made that was probably not an ideal decision. I think Slack probably has a place in our future stack related to community, but it's definitely not the hub. Yeah, no, I could definitely understand that with Slack. You know, Slack is not the best place for community. It seems like everybody creates a community in Slack because it's the lowest barrier to entry type product. But even in my opinion, I don't participate in any of the communities. I might be in like 16 or 20 of them, but I don't participate because it's just a wall of text. Um, and I agree with you. It doesn't allow you to really create that that town hall community type form that you really need to make things work. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time and giving us so much information. My pleasure. This was fun. I always love to talk about marketing technology in the stack. So thank you for creating the venue. 
Oh, absolutely. And I'll talk to you soon, Roland. So thanks so much for being here. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. Sounds good. I'm Dan McGaugh, and you've been listening to The Stack, a podcast where we talk to executives building cool shit in The Stack. Before wrapping up today, what Roland said about community building is important. One of the biggest moats you will ever hear SaaS companies brag about is the community that they have built. They host this community in Slack or maybe even a community forum. For me, though, these still don't do the whole community thing justice. No one has really quite cracked the nut on making a product for building community. I recently discovered Try.so and Mighty Networks. Both are big community-focused SaaS products, and I'll have them both on the show soon. And we'll let you tell us what you think about their product. Well, that's it for now. Join me each week to hear from leaders driving revenue and making their goals a reality with the stack. Because you're interested in this podcast, naturally, the next step is to get a free copy of my book, Build Cool Shit. You can get a free copy by texting the stack to 415-915-9011 or just visiting buildcoolshit.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you next week.